Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, what Mark is going to do today is to take an overall view of Acts, the take-homes that we can use and apply to our lives. And we thank you, Mark, for your diligence in this study. And we hope that anybody that comes across this will find this of value to your life and spiritual life. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for allowing us to uh, to study your word and for faithful servants like Mark who who uh, search diligently for the truths that you've given us in the Bible and, and so that we can apply these these truths to our lives. And bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. It's uh, good to be back with everyone. We have uh, spent a good bit of time on the book of Acts, but it has been a, a life-changing study for me as I've had to go into this far deeper than ever before in my life. I want to thank Don Preston of Ardmore, Oklahoma, my friend and mentor who provided tapes of his study of Acts given back in 2005 that I used to develop the outline that we've been going by in the last few months. We're trying actually to convert this into a manuscript of some sort that could be used as a study guide. So maybe we'll be able to announce that in the months or years coming. But uh, thanks to Don for making this all possible. I don't think I can get through the whole book of Acts, but we will get uh, a good way here. We want to go back and hit on the high point since it was months ago when we started this study. We really need to go into the book of Luke because originally, as we pointed out, Luke and Acts were not titled Luke and Acts. They were titled The uh, History of Christian Origins Part 1 and The History of Christian Origins Part 2. They were the same book, and they are the letter or a letter or a pair of letters that were written to Theophilus, and so they go together. And so really the story of Acts we found begins in the book of Luke, and so I just want to hit a couple of key verses in Luke here that set the stage for what we're going to say about the book of Acts. Back in Luke 17, verse 20, the Pharisees came to Christ and demanded to know when the reign of God would come. And Christ answered and said, The reign of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, Oh, look here, or look there. For behold, 
the kingdom of God is within you. Okay, so this, this is so important today as so many people who claim to be Christian are confused and arguing with each other about the nature of the kingdom of God or even trying to say that the kingdom of Christ is separate from the kingdom of God, is separate from the kingdom of heaven, is separate from the restored throne of David or the kingdom of Israel. In our study, we pointed out the synonymous usage of all those terms to describe God's eternal purpose to set up a perfect dwelling place for his spirit here on earth in a spiritual temple made of living stones, the living stones of anointed believers, which take, takes us back even further into our examination of the Gospel of John, where this is the major theme of that entire book. But it is not a kingdom that can be seen, and it is a kingdom that is within us. This verse alone would refute the uh, dispensational or Christian Zionist view uh, of the kingdom if they were to allow that all these terms are synonymous. Now, then we'll skip forward to Luke 24. Right on the day of the resurrection of Christ, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and, of course, Jesus appears to them, and he, he makes them explain all of the events as if he wasn't aware of them, and they are glad to do so. And after listening to their explanation, in verse 25, Christ said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the things the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things, to enter into his glory? And beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, he explained to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. And we pointed out that when the term scriptures is used in what we call the New Testament, it is referring exclusively to the Hebrew scriptures or what we call the Old Testament. And so here Jesus makes the bold assertion that the, the entire focus of the Old Testament properly should be Christ. But also we see that they had to have it explained to them. And if the, if the dispensational hermeneutic, which is the fancy word for the way of interpreting the Bible, and their their hermeneutic is that you must interpret the Bible, they say literally, but what they really mean is physically, unless you're forced by the context to interpret it spiritually or figuratively. But here, if you took it on the plain reading, which is the, the term fundamentalist, which was used of Schofield and others uh, preaching dispensationalism, that fundamentalism involved just simply reading the Bible and letting each verse stand alone in its context. And this is the way they insist on interpreting the Bible. Yet here, Jesus had to explain the things about himself in the Scriptures. Okay? Now, just a little bit later that same evening, skip down to verse 44, Luke chapter 24 still. These two get back to Jerusalem. They turn around and uh, they go into where all the disciples were probably still in that upper room. And 
Jesus appears to them, materializes uh, right there in the room, even though the door was locked, and he ate with them. And then, beginning in verse 4, he said to them, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that all the things must be fulfilled which have been written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, So it is written, and so the Christ must suffer and do rise from the dead the third day. And so he, he explained the scriptures to them on the road to Emmaus, and now he's opening their minds to understand the scriptures. And the key to this understanding is that for the old scriptures to be fulfilled, the Christ must suffer. The path to the kingdom lay through the cross. And this is a direct opposite of what the founder of dispensationalism wrote in his essay about the cross being the great defeat of God's plan to set up the physical kingdom amongst the physical Jews in the first century. He wrote that the cross was the absolute collapse of that idea, and it was an absolute failure of God's plan to come about. Are you talking about Cyrus Schofield? No, no, his predecessor, Okay. Uh, who came over from England. Darby? Yes, thank you, Darby. John Darby wrote that in the 1860s. He wrote an essay on the failure of the cross. So we're moving along quickly here. As we go right into Acts 1, which is just a continuation of, of Luke 24, in verse 3, to the apostles also he showed himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them through 40 days and speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. This verse is so overlooked by so many. But he spent his entire 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension instructing the disciples about the kingdom of God. And do you see how this is just a continuation of Luke uh, 17, Luke 24 that we just looked at, that the kingdom is not something that can come by observation or by a casual reading of the Old Testament scriptures. It was something that had to be explained to open up their understanding. Now, then, he promises them that they will wait there and they will receive the promise of the Father. And this promise, we, we looked at at the end of the book of Acts. This was what Paul preached. His whole gospel message was based on the promises given to the fathers, given to old covenant Israel, the promise of resurrection. And that this promise would be fulfilled, as we saw in Ezekiel 37, when God breathed his spirit on the dead bones of Israel. And they were told here in Acts 1-5 that not many days from now you will be uh, immersed in the Holy Spirit. And so any student of the Scriptures, and they had just had 40 days of divine instruction following three years of divine instruction on the meaning of 
all of these prophecies and promises. And, and we've, we looked at a bunch of them at the latter part of our study. The initiation of the kingdom would be God pouring out his spirit on Israel to raise them from the dead. That's that vision of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. And so immediately after this promise in Acts 1-6, we saw this key question. The disciples questioned him and said, Lord, at this time are you restoring the rule to Israel? And dispensationalists say that they were right, that they were going to try to set up uh, the physical kingdom, but then they get all confused and convoluted. And people who are not dispensationalists say almost universally in the scholarly literature that, well, the, the disciples were still completely and totally confused and did not understand the spiritual nature of the kingdom or the rule or the reign. And so this, this is one of the key points that we have made through our study is that these men had to have understood exactly what they were asking here in Acts 1-6. They understood that the kingdom was within their own hearts, that it was a spiritual kingdom that could not be observed physically when they asked this question. And so they understood exactly that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was tied in with the establishment of this spiritual kingdom. Mark, is it appropriate for a question? If what you say about this is so, then it leads to the very obvious conclusion that Jewish believers in the Old Testament are totally incapable of finding Christianity without having the New Testament explained to them. Is that, is that, is that, does that follow what you said? And if uh, that's yeah. true, then yeah. what about the Messianic movement, which is, of course, a movement that says that Christianity is not complete unless it accepts old Israel structures and practices and holidays and so on? Well, it is certainly true that that many Christians and Bible scholars or students are studying the New Testament outside of the proper context of the Old. And, and just by going and studying the book of Acts within the context of these Old Testament promises, we have just heard the book come alive in our ears. So having the Old to go along with the New is essential. However, it does not follow that the physical forms of the old, which were types and shadows, we're clearly told, of the spiritual truths of God's kingdom, it does not follow that to accept the the authority and the importance of the Old Testament scripture requires a restoration of the physical forms that are contained in there. I mean, some of them may be harmless, but some of them deny the, the reality of the spiritual fulfillment of all of those types and shadows of the Passover meal and the tabernacle and the garments that the children of Israel wore and so on and so forth. So I, I'm not an authority on the Messianic movement, but I, I, would, I would make that 
clear distinction. But I would also say that it would be very difficult for a Jew studying only the Hebrew Scriptures to come to a truthful knowledge of Jesus Christ because they have to hear the gospel, which is this spiritual explanation of the promises made to Israel. Without that, I mean, I've spent quite a bit of time the last few weeks studying the Jewish, Orthodox Jewish understanding of the end times. And what you gather is extreme confusion. They do not have enough information to understand the day of judgment, the resurrection, the messianic rule. And they, so they have to fill that in with speculation. And every rabbi out there, as good intention as he may be, he comes out with something quite different from the next rabbi. And there have been so many schools that have branched off in the last 2,000 years They all have different ideas on this. So when you go and study this uh, on the websites, you just see quite a bit of confusion. They just do not have the whole story. Thanks. Yeah, okay. So this is the important thing to grasp here in Acts 1, is that they understood by this point the true nature of the kingdom, that it had to be a spiritual kingdom that could not be physically observed. Jesus had to open their eyes to understand. They had to realize that the crown had to be obtained through the cross, which again refutes modern dispensationalism in most of its forms today. If you read casually the Old Testament prophecies about restoring Israel to the land, well, and you read that with the dispensational hermeneutic, you're going to think that it's all about real estate. But here we see Jesus had to open their eyes to understand the true meaning of these promises. We go to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. And Peter here, he's, he's one of the 12 apostles to the Judean Christians. And he's writing this letter to Judeans who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And he's talking about the faith in Christ, which brings the salvation of their souls. And picking up in verse 10, he says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that would be coming to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow, unto whom it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us. Okay? So Peter, in his letter, is saying that the prophets themselves did not understand the nature of these promises, only in these last days of Israel, could the true meaning of these promises and prophecies be understood. Also, Paul writes about this often. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, The natural man cannot receive the things of God. And I would say that this would be the physical man, the physical-minded man, 
or to use the dispensational vocabulary, the literal man cannot receive the things of God because the things of God are spiritual. And if you insist on reading the Bible physically, you are going to miss the things of God. And Paul bemoans over and over again that old covenant Israel in his day was looking at things in their old, earthly, carnal, natural way. Now, in 1 Corinthians 2, 7, he had said, But we speak the wisdom of God in mystery, even the hidden wisdom which has been hidden before the foundation of the world, but has now been revealed to us through the Spirit. Okay, so this outpouring of the Spirit, Acts 1, that's what they're waiting for. These are the, the Spirit is poured out on these men who will become the authors of the New Testament, which is passing on to us the instruction of Christ as to how to properly interpret the Old Testament Scriptures. So, from the very beginning, we find that Acts is really about the kingdom of God. I mean, scholars debate why the book of Acts was written. Just a dry history book or as a uh, consolation prize because the kingdom of God had failed so miserably, resulting in the, the unexpected crucifixion of Christ. So the book of Acts is a last-minute throw-together plan of a substitute thing called the church. There's all these ideas. My tradition says that Acts was written just as a historical list of conversions, and, the, and it's called the book of conversions. But we see that in reality, Acts is all about the kingdom of God. It begins and ends with an obsession over the kingdom of God. And we learn that this is the hope of Israel and that this is the resurrection. We learn that they are all the same thing. The hope of Israel is the resurrection. The resurrection is the hope of Israel. The resurrection is the kingdom of God. If you are in the kingdom of God, you cannot die. You are join to Christ, and you cannot die, according to Christ, in the Gospel of John. And this is what the book of Acts is about. It's a much more exciting theme than what is admitted in most of the scholarly literature. And again, here we see that the restoration of the Spirit of God to Israel was the sign in all the Old Testament prophecies that the kingdom was about to be restored. And so they knew it when they asked that question, are you now going to restore the rule to Israel? They knew the kingdom was right at hand. What we don't see in the book of Acts is any language describing postponement, change of plan, failure of plan. We don't see any hint of that from Christ, from the apostles, from Luke. We don't find that. And yet, if the dispensational interpretation is true, the book of Acts should be full of apologies. Christ should be apologizing that he failed. The apostles should be apologizing to Israel and to the nations that everything had failed, but we don't find any apology anywhere. At the very end of chapter 1, we find them meeting to replace Judas, and we see great symbolic meaning there because the 12, the number 12 represented the perfection of Israel, and the number of apostles had to be restored to 12 
so that Israel could be restored and that there would be one apostle to judge all 12 tribes. And, and so this takes us beyond just Judah, the remnant of the remnant of the remnant of Israel, Judah, Benjamin, and, and half of Levi, who, who had survived. It wasn't those two and a half tribes. It was all 12, which goes back to the Valley of Dry Bones, which are the whole house of Israel. And all the promises that in the last days when Messiah comes, all 12 tribes would be gathered together from the four corners of the earth. And as we move into chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of all of these promises and high expectations that were described at the end of Luke and in Acts chapter 1. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and announces that the promise of Joel chapter 2 is being fulfilled. There could not be anything more significant to a Jew looking for the redemption of Israel than to hear Peter say that they were seeing the promise of the prophet Joel fulfilled right there at that time. And it's interesting that all the dispensational authors say that, well, Peter was a little confused here in Acts chapter 2. Peter was not really saying that Joel was being fulfilled. Uh, there's a, a converted Jew named Arnold Fruchtenbaum who writes apologetic literature for dispensationalists. He's one of the favorite sources for Thomas Ice and Tim LaHaye. And he says that virtually nothing that happened on the day of Pentecost was foretold by the prophet Joel. Now that's kind of an amazing statement. <laughs> and it's even more amazing that others would quote that as an authoritative statement about the Bible. When Peter said that this is the fulfillment of what Joel said, how could he have stated it any clearer than that? He didn't say, this is kind of like what Joel promised. This is a preview of what Joel promised. No, he said, this is what Joel promised. And the whole prophecy of Joel is about the restoration of Israel through judgment and miraculous transformation. So Acts 2 is the story of the restoration of Israel as promised in chapter 1. Peter quotes in uh, verse 29, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn to him that from the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. That's talking about David. This Jesus has God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. In verse 33, uh, David is not ascended into the heavens, but he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Which is a quote from the 110th Psalm, saying that the Messiah would be raised up to be seated on David's throne. And so, Acts chapter 2 announces the restoration of David's throne at God's right hand. And again, demonstrates the spiritual nature of the kingdom and that Christ is David uh, sitting on that throne uh, spiritually. So again, where, where you have a king you have, and a throne, you must have a kingdom. And how it can be deferred for thousands of years is, uh, is beyond me. Acts chapter 3 is continuing on here. 
the thousands of Acts 2 who believed and were, were immersed in water, received the gift of the Holy Spirit, continue to, to grow. And uh, Peter and John are up there on the Temple Mount, and we have this incredibly important sermon there after they heal the man who was lame uh, from birth, who all of the hundreds of thousands or millions of Judeans who made the pilgrimage back to Jerusalem for the feast days had seen this man sitting there over and over and over by this beautiful bronze gate in the temple courtyard, one of the choicest spots for a beggar in the city of Jerusalem. So the, the miracle was irrefutable when this man was instantaneously cured of his lameness and he leapt for joy in fulfillment of one of the Old Testament promises. And in his sermon afterwards, Peter uses the Greek word apakatata, no, I can't, <laughs> apakatatastasis, now that's still butchering the pronunciation, which is the idea of restoring things to the way they were supposed to be. And he's talking about the seasons of restoration and of revival, of restoring breath to Israel. He could almost be reading from Ezekiel 37, where the dead, spiritually dead nation of Israel is being restored to life, just like the legs of the lame man had been instantaneously, miraculously restored to life. So the nation of Israel was being reformed and restored and he makes a very important statement there that all the prophets from Samuel forward spoke of these days. And again, most modern scholars say that those days are still going on today, stretching out for hundreds and thousands of years. But yet we see a much simpler interpretation of this by referring to the days of Christ and the apostles as the days in which God's eternal purpose to transform Israel into the perfect spiritual kingdom would all be fulfilled. So Peter in Acts 3 is affirming that they were living in the days of the restoration of Israel, which of course would preclude us still waiting and hoping uh, in this day that something dramatic is going to happen in the physical land of Palestine so that God might finally finish what he had tried to do and failed so miserably in 2,000 years before. In Acts uh, chapter 4, the apostles are called on the carpet in front of the Sanhedrin, the supreme court of the Judean nation. They are told never to preach in the name of Jesus again. Here's what they had said back in Acts 3. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man, the lame man, from the beautiful gate, stands before you whole today. And they're having to explain this preaching uh, in front of the Sanhedrin. They're threatened not to do it, but they keep right on. Peter begins to use in Acts 4 the rejected stone motif that Jesus had used uh, in Matthew 21. There's three or four Old Testament prophecies that speak of the cornerstone that would be rejected by the builders would become the chief cornerstone. And again, this does not lend itself well to a physical temple in physical Jerusalem, but it lends itself perfectly to the concept of a spiritual temple built on the cornerstone of Christ and the foundation 
of the apostles and then built up with courses and courses of living stones of Judeans and of all nations on planet Earth. And again, the idea that is so confused today, but that is there so simply in the Bible, is that salvation is being part of this spiritual temple. If you are an anointed stone in the temple of God, you have been joined to Christ in marriage as the bride of Christ, you cannot die. You have the gift of resurrection life. In uh, verse 22 of Acts 4, he talks about mankind, the rulers of the earth, raging against Messiah, arraying them against Messiah. But the one who sits in the heavens would laugh at them, which is a quote from Psalms chapter 2. And, of course, it's very appropriate for the days of Christ and the disciples. We can surely make application of this today as well, but it has specific application to uh, Pilate and Herod and the other Herods and the high priests all trying to crush Christ and to crush all those who believed on him. The one in the heavens shall laugh. And, of course, in doing this, unfortunately, it also makes a laughing stock out of our dispensational friends who claims that God failed to overcome the efforts of the Herods and the high priests and the pilots, you see. God wasn't scared, but our dispensational friends are. They believe that the powers of earth can thwart the plans of God. That's not my God. All right, so we didn't go into a lot of detail in Acts chapter 5, 6, and 7, but we saw the incredible amount of growth of believers uh, in Jerusalem and Judea, and we saw how that the plan that Christ had announced back in Acts 1 was being followed precisely to the letter, where in Acts 1.8, he said, you will receive power once the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost ends of the earth. And this is what we see developing here in Acts 5, 6, 7, and 8. We see the gospel exploding beyond the bounds of Jerusalem into the neighboring areas of Judea and then also getting into Samaria who were the uh, remnants of the northern tribes, although they were really no better than the, all the other nations Overall, we see in the explanation of the promises to Israel that since the northern kingdom is scattered like seed into the nations of the earth, the only way to restore Israel is to gather in all the nations of the earth into God's spiritual kingdom. And bringing in the Samaritans is a uh, very symbolic uh, step and worthy of specific mention by Christ in his plan back in Acts 1-8. So we saw that in Acts 5 through 8. We also saw the exciting conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch and a man who traveled thousands of miles to give offerings at the temple in Jerusalem and yet who was excluded from the community of Israel by number one being a eunuch and number two being someone foreign-born. 
And then we see how it's overlooked by nearly all the scholars that Philip began in Isaiah 53 explaining to him the gospel of Christ. And if you just go a few pages over to Isaiah 56, you see this incredible promise that when God establishes his kingdom, that the eunuch will no longer be considered a dry tree. He will be able to bear fruit in the kingdom of God. He will be a citizen of the kingdom of first standing. And this man who had been a third-class citizen of God's kingdom, Israel, now has heard the gospel that he is a citizen uh, on the highest order, equal to anybody else in the kingdom. And And he goes on his way rejoicing. It's so important to not miss what so many miss. Why? His sins are are covered well they were covered by the old law but he's excited about something more than that he's excited about God's kingdom being restored in him God's kingdom within him and he's going back to Ethiopia to share that good news with people back there so we see here in in Acts chapters 5 through 8 the difference between the old covenant and the new the old covenant was based on physical genealogy physical procreation, nationality, race, and gender. And the New Covenant overcomes all of those factors. As Jeremiah puts it, No longer will every man say to his brother and every man to his neighbor, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. So you had to be born into a physical nation. You had to be an Israelite. You had to be a Judean later on to be the seed of Abraham. But in the New Covenant, Christians are taught and then born. And so there's quite a contrast here uh, between the old physical nation of God and the new spiritual nation of God. Anyone, even a eunuch, can bring children into the kingdom by teaching others of the gospel of Christ. All right, well, I'm going to stop there, and uh, we'll pick up at Acts 9 and try to uh, quickly wrap this up in one or two more sessions. Thank you very much. All right, well, thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.